I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. You know, it's always a pleasure. I noticed the other day that one of our listeners, George Romis, posted several questions up on the website. The first lot relate to what economic or demographic indicators should be kept in mind when researching a target area, and would they differ with respect to the commercial type of property? From my limited knowledge, I'm guessing in those two questions alone, there would probably be enough to fill a couple of podcasts. So, how would you like to handle them? Yes, look, you're probably right. The question is pretty meaty. But probably the greatest demographic influence will be as a result of what occurred between 1946 and 1964, when about five and a half million Australians were born. This was a population explosion. And this generation became known as the baby boomers. And the boomers' hard work effectively fueled the continued expansion of the Australian economy over the past 40 years. Now, this generation is reaching retirement age. In 2011, the first set of baby boomers turned 65. And according to the Bureau of Statistics, nearly 300,000 baby boomers will reach the age of 65 every year for the next couple of decades. Now, I think it was back in about 2005, I came out with some rather startling advice for clients. And this was that if you haven't sold your traditional family home by 2010, you'd better be prepared to hold on to it till 2025 because there simply won't be a market for it. And given the recent surge in home sales, particularly in, in Sydney and Melbourne over the past six months, you'd be excused for thinking that my prediction might be way off the mark. But let's perhaps take a closer look at how things have changed over the past few years. Now, in 2008, the global financial crisis impacted the housing market in several ways. The uh, initial concerns caused people to defer any buying or selling for a period, and therefore the pent-up demand became fuelled by the first home buyers grant and generally by the government's GFC package. And with record low interest rates, the would-be tenants found it cheaper to buy rather than to rent. Now, this artificial stimulus to the market is now being wound back and interest rates have pretty much bottomed out. So any increase in rates going forward will start to curb buyer activity. Now you add to that the trend where Gen Y children seem to be staying at home much longer, sometimes well into their 30s. But what hasn't changed though is the Australian demographics for the baby boomers. And as I said in 2011, that was the year when the first of them started turning 65. But unlike their parents, the baby boomers are not going to wait around until they're about to be carried out of the homes before they decide to move. No, they see the next 20 to 25 years as a new chapter in their lives where they want to downsize and start living for themselves. Now, it may be a slight generalisation, but what you're going to find happening over the next decade or so is that baby boomers will start living where they now holiday and holiday where they now live. In other words, they will now make their main residence wherever they had previously treated as their holiday home or their farm. 
And what they'll be looking for is a scaled-down version of their traditional home in the city to come and visit family and friends from time to time. Now, that for some may be a couple of days during the week. It may be once every fortnight or once a month for a period. Now, sure, they may need to prize the kids out with a crowbar from their, their current home or maybe just move to an apartment or townhouse with a couple of spare bedrooms. Either way, they're about to start their decision-making process and will be doing it en masse. And therein lies your dilemma, because when it comes to selling your traditional family home, it's not that there will be any fewer buyers, just that there will be about five times as many of these types of properties on the market over the next 15 years or so. Please understand, this doesn't relate to trophy homes, the multi-million dollar homes that we're talking about in in the tens and 20 millions, nor am I expecting this to impact on the growth suburbs in the outer lying areas around our capital cities. It's principally concerning those traditional three to five bedroom homes in the inner middle suburbs of Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide within the $1 million to $3 million price bracket. For most people, over the years, they've considered their family home to be a de facto part of their superannuation. However, as a baby boomer, that could well prove to be a myth unless you downsize early and beat the rush. Uh, All the financial crisis has done is delay the start of this process a few years. So the real question in all of this is, how will it affect commercial property? Now, interestingly, most people haven't stopped to think that through as to how it could impact upon their commercial property investment plans. And for some of our listeners, it may have no impact at all. But I suspect there are a fair number of baby boomers where the effect may be quite devastating. And here's the reason why. Like many investors, you might well have used the growing equity in your family home as you paid the mortgage off to support a line of credit to go and buy a commercial investment property. Therefore, if you do delay your decision to downsize too long, you are effectively facing two potential problems. The first one being that the value of your home could actually fall and thereby cause your bank concern with the loan-to-valuation ratio. The other problem is that when you do decide to sell, you might find at worst that there is a shortfall between your net proceeds and your line of credit, or at best, you have considerably less than expected left over for your future plans in your retirement. Now, please don't think I'm saying you need to panic and sell your family home next month. However, you ought to be aware of what is about to transpire, and at the very least, think and talk about what steps might be appropriate in your situation. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I think it might have been during episode nine, we covered in some detail how many or how the many baby boomers may leave their long-standing job at 65, but they won't actually be retiring in the traditional sense, mainly because they're expecting to live for the next 20 years or so. Instead, they'll simply set up their own private consultancy businesses, which is what is now providing much of the solid demand for suburban strata offices, both as tenants and also as owner-occupiers. So I know we've covered a fair area and and 
gone, you might say, in a circle. But I hope that that provides George with the answer that he's looking for, because it it is a fascinating but very complex subject. Okay, that more or less covers the demographic aspect. Um, would you like to quickly explain how economic indicators can influence commercial property? Probably the main economic factor is interest rates. As we discussed a few episodes ago, retail property is the sector most affected when interest rates rise. And conversely, you would have expected retail property to take off with falling interest rates. But what you've seen is a collapse in consumer confidence, which has severely curbed retail turnover. And therefore, you're unlikely to see things improve a lot for retail being now at the bottom of the interest cycle and the movement for interest rates can only be up from here as we look forward over the next five to ten years. Anyway, because nowadays industrial property is largely warehousing for retailers or related retail activity, any significant increase in interest rates over the next few years will have a delayed flow-on effect upon industrial property which currently is actually enjoying quite strong demand. However, as I think I mentioned in the earlier podcast, interest rates have little or no direct impact on the office sector itself. The health of that sector is really based upon the supply and demand of office space, both in the CBD and the suburban areas. And that is probably more driven by the state of the economy and the buoyancy and speculative construction that is undertaken to meet a perceived demand which may or may not be fulfilled. Now, with the federal election out of the way, you should start to see the office sector move strongly upwards and peak probably somewhere between 2018-2020. So hopefully that covers the economic impact question that George had. And there was also a further question that George posed. Do you assess investment potential in regional towns in the same way as you would capital city suburbs? Yeah, this is... An interesting question. By regional, I'm assuming we're not merely talking about places like Geelong and Ballarat in Victoria and Newcastle in New South Wales, because these are well-established cities in their own right, and as such, the same assessment criteria as for the capital cities would apply. Instead, I'm assuming that we're talking about the lesser regional towns and to some extent we probably should include some of the newly developed growth areas on the outskirts of our capital cities. And the question here is not so much whether the same criteria ought to be applied, but rather when does it become profitable to buy commercial properties in these locations? Now, you can undertake all sorts of research, both economic and demographic, but I prefer a much simpler and less expensive approach. You see, all you need to do in these areas is simply drive around and take note of how many of the various retail chains are already operating within the area. Now, initially, the food chains will emerge as the new families start to move into the suburbs or towns and build up the population growth. But it's not until you see some of the national fashion retailers and other retailers starting to set up that the area 
has reached the tipping point for when you as an investor can start looking seriously at the location. But even then, I would probably only encourage those of you who are living nearby or who are very familiar with the region to actually consider purchasing a commercial investment property within these locations. And that simply goes back to having an intimate knowledge of your particular niche market. You seem to have covered things pretty well. Are there any final comments before we wrap up? Well, perhaps we might look at a few of the common mistakes that people make. And maybe the first one would be lack of research. You see, before most people buy a car or a television set, they tend to compare the different models, they ask lots of questions, they try to determine whether what they're about to purchase is indeed worth the money. However, the due diligence that goes on when you're purchasing a commercial property should be even more rigorous than that. Not only must you seek answers to a a lot of technical questions about the property, but you should also inquire about the neighbourhood itself in which it's located. And you do that mainly to confirm that it fits the property you're looking at fits within the precinct that is suitable to the current and potential future occupants because you don't want to be buying a property that is is one-off. I think we might have discussed this in an earlier podcast. Now, the second mistake people also make is not paying enough attention to your financing arrangements. Now, many investors, I find, tend to focus principally on identifying the property and negotiating the purchase. And they see the finance as merely a formality that happens as a matter of course after the contract's been signed. However, what I found is that having properly structured finance arrangements can make or break the deal. And therefore, it's something that you really need to start thinking about well before the actual purchase of the property takes place. The third mistake that's commonly made is trying to do everything on your own. And again, many investors think that they they know everything and that they can close a property deal all by themselves. And while they might have completed several deals successfully in the past, not every deal will go smoothly. And more importantly, you need to set up the ongoing management structure so that it, it minimises your exposure legally, and I'm talking about compliance with statutory rules and regulations, and simply to say you weren't aware of them is no excuse when something goes awry, and effectively to make your ongoing involvement with the property totally worry-free. And your skill ought to be devoted to finding, identifying, negotiating, and packaging up the property. And you need to um, often have help to do that, but importantly, you need to have the ongoing management, the day-to-day housekeeping issues looked after by someone else who does it day in, day out. And as such, you really need to tap into every possible resource and establish a team of trusted consultants around you. Now, the the fourth common mistake is just simply overpaying for the property. And in part, this relates to undertaking the proper research, but also in remaining totally dispassionate during the negotiations. As I say to, to clients, you need to care, but not too much. Because as soon as you must have the property, you'll end up paying 
over the top as far as what it's worth. As an investor, you need to realise that there are always other opportunities out there and that even if the negotiation process becomes bogged down or ends up completely in a stalemate, the odds are in your favour that there's going to be another property out there probably just as good. So it's, it's a matter simply of being patient in the searching process and making sure that you get the best available property and then only when you've got the best available property at the time to cement a deal that works for you. And probably the the final mistake that people commonly make is to underestimate the expenses involved in purchasing a property. Over the years, I've seen quite a few investors commit to properties which are more expensive than they can actually afford. This comes down or comes about through them carrying out their borrowing calculations based solely on the purchase price and in the process ignoring the associated acquisition costs like stamp duty, legal costs, valuation fees and so on. And so because it happens so often and quite often unwittingly, what I'm planning to do as the first enhancement of my soon-to-be-launched app is to include what I'm calling the purchasing power wizard because not only do people often underestimate the costs but they sometimes ignore equity that they have hidden in other properties and therefore they find that they are in fact underestimating the amount that they can pay on some occasions. And what this will do is quickly calculate how much you can afford to pay based on your equity and borrowing capacity, but taking into account the various acquisition costs as well. So in summary, the reality is that if commercial property investing was that easy, everyone would be doing it. And therefore, the sizable profits simply wouldn't be there. But fortunately, many of the struggles that investors will encounter can be easily avoided simply with the property advice and planning before you actually commit to purchase the property. Okay, then let's call it a day. Uh, Many thanks, Chris. And we'll catch up with you again next week. Yes, I'll look forward to seeing you again at the same time. 